The untrackable formative tasks absolutely have a place. Um, you might do short quizzes, you might run cahoots. All of those things are formative data that you're collecting through your observations and, and hopefully it's informing maybe your next 10 minutes. If you see that students are really bombing out in a cahoot, you know that maybe something needs to be retaught. You know that maybe the next time you walk into the room, you need to go over something that came up in the cahoot. That's all evidence-informed practice and it's all valid. That was today's guest, educator, author, speaker and school data coach, Dr. Selena Fisk. And you are listening to episode number 20 of the Teacher's Guide podcast. Gentlemen, what are the four pillars? Now you all remember how scary your first days at school were. You've done messed up, A.A. Ron! Hello and welcome to the Teacher's Guide podcast. Thank you very much for tuning in. My name is Zach Woodward. I'm a primary school teacher from Brisbane, Australia, and I will be your host each week. The aim of this podcast is to provide information and experiences that will help all teachers to thrive in their role, particularly aimed at beginner teachers and those who are aspiring to one day join the teaching profession. We like each episode to be short and to the point, so let's get into it. As teachers, we have so many tools at our disposal to help us make sure that we are creating the best possible learning environment for our students. And one of those tools is data, and that's what today's episode is all about, how we can use data about where our students are at to work out which students we need to support and who needs extension in our class. Today's guest, Dr. Selena Fisk, has made it her full-time job to coach schools on how to use this data to improve the learning of the students in their school. And so we had a great chat, and I'm sure that you will enjoy it. I started out the interview by asking Selena to tell us about what data is and why teachers should be interested in it. I mean, it's everything, really. It's all the things that we collect um, in our work. So a lot of people that I work with talk about the large amounts of anecdotal and qualitative data that they collect or observations that they make or scanning student work. And that's that's actually data as well. Um, when we kind of talk about data-informed practice in schools, the focus is more, it tends to be more on the quantitative analysis um, because the qualitative stuff, I think, as teachers, we've done really well for a really long time. Um, but obviously there's been an emergence of quantitative data in the rest of the world and in every other facet of our, facet of our life. So it mm. kind of makes sense that it's transferring into, into education. So in terms of quantitative data, um, teachers have got access to a whole host of different sources, right? So the ones that people would most commonly know about would be NAPLAN, um, but, you know, a lot of schools do ACER, PAT testing, so PAT reading, PAT maths, um, general ability, the AGAT testing. There's other kind of standardised testing that is done in different schools um, depending on where you work. Um also, the previous semester result is really useful because that information, even though it's historic and it's point in time and it, it doesn't tell us what a student is necessarily going to do in the future, um, it can provide or help us out with a bit of a picture about where the strengths and the gaps are with our learners. But then there's also, as we go through and through a teaching period, there's the formative tasks that we collect um, the, the formative data that we collect, but then obviously also the summative assessment and um, results that we collect at the end. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of data out there. Um, there's also, you know, there's also well-being, there's attendance, there's yeah. uh, graphic, there's 
um, the level of adjustments that students require on NCCD, there's, mm. yeah, <laughs> there's yeah. a lot of that there. Yeah, and I like that you mentioned well-being and I, I've seen, I saw you did a uh, webinar on that a little while ago and I, it's funny because I, when I was new in the role, I thought data was just just about their academic learning but so well-being is something there's lots of data around too. Is, is that something that more schools are taking on now? Yeah, definitely. Um, I've been doing this role um, about three and a half years now, kind of part-time mm. and then full-time last year. And I certainly started in this role as a school data coach and consultant, purely mm. focused on learning analytics. Mm. Um, and I was always interested in tracking well-being, but, I, but the pandemic really accelerated the tools and I guess it really forced people to think about how they could collect evidence of how students were going. So mm. I worked with a few schools last year where we kind of came up with um, deliberate ways of tracking how students were going and mm. hearing from students. So the student wellbeing part is super important, but also the student voice is really important. So yeah. they're kind of um, two really, I guess, vital elements to data collection yeah. um, because, you know, without student voice as well, we we're just we might be making assumptions about things that work and don't work for, yes. for young people. Yeah. And so when you say student voice, is that when students uh, do a, a quiz or a questionnaire or have feedback on some results and data you present to them? Is that how it sort of works? Um, even more than that. So um, like student perception surveys, so school mm. perception surveys. So school, like at a school level or at a year level, looking at what students are saying is working mm. for them and what's not working for them. Um, you know, during the period of home-based learning last year, we were looking at, we asked students what they found best about mm. home-based learning and we asked them for the things that weren't working. Mm. And there were some things that came up that we didn't expect and there were some that we did expect, but it's, um, I guess that's why we collect it. It's about mm. looking for those insights that maybe our anecdotal observations or, you know, I mean, when we were working from home and kids were working from home, it was so hard to actually know what was happening. So explicitly asking them um, what they, you know, what they were struggling with and yeah. Even things like we were asking, um, you know, what's the quality of your sleep and, and how well are you exercising and, um, you know, what's your learning productivity? So we were just, we were asking them to self-reflect and rate how they had gone. And that's a really worthwhile process in itself. But then it also provided a really great source of information for us, for heads of year to be able to approach year levels and parents, um, for um, individual students who are tracking really and were self-reporting really kind of low wellbeing scores, then that was a completely different intervention. Um, so, yeah, increasingly it's um, it's uh, it's an increasing priority in schools. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm really excited to see, I guess, where, what the future holds in the wellbeing space because I think we can just do it a lot better than we currently are. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And it's so good to see that we can use data to see how our students are tracking. We don't need to try and guess or wait for them to come and tell us something. There's lots of ways to, to gain that information. That's, that's really good. And so before we go into how teachers, particularly beginner teachers, can use data to inform their teaching, I like that you've mentioned lots of things about anecdotal and qualitative data that we get from our students. So how can teachers obtain this data on a daily basis and what sort of formative tasks or anecdotal information can we can we source? 
Yeah, so when you when you talk about formative tasks and formative assessments in schools, I often um, split formative assessment and tasks into the trackable and the untrackable. Mm. So, for example, uh, a formative task is if I check for understanding in my classroom and I have or I ask students to show. Um, you know, like put their hand up and show the number of fingers to represent their level of understanding. So one is I'm really stuck, I need help, all the way through to five being I'm really confident and I could teach somebody else. Now, that's a formative assessment because when you're standing at the front of the room and you're scanning the room and you're working out how many fingers kids are holding up, Mm. that's absolutely a formative assessment. But it's not something that you would track and record Um, And then, you know, a lot of the work I do is around, well, collecting more um, trackable information, comparing it to the historical and the contextual information you've got um, and making decisions based on that. So the untrackable formative tasks absolutely have a place. Um, Mm. You might do short quizzes, you might run cahoots, all of those things are formative data that you're collecting through your observations and, and hopefully it's informing maybe your next 10 minutes. If you see that students are really bombing out in a cahoot, you know that maybe something needs to be retaught. You know that maybe the next time you walk into the room, you need to go over something that came up in the cahoot. That's all evidence-informed practice and it's all Mm. valid. Um, Mm. But as I was saying earlier, you know, the qualitative and anecdotal observations, um, it's not everything um, Mm. and it can't be everything. On the other hand, formative tasks that are tracked are those that you're able to then kind of say, well, is that student performing at a level that I would expect of them? Are they underperforming? Mm. Is something maybe going? And and I guess some people think that data is really negative and it doesn't always have to be. Sometimes the data shows us that something's working really well for a young person. Mm. And um, it, it might mean that we look at a result. Um, and I taught a student a couple of years ago in, I was at a school in the north of Brisbane and um and she had always been a C student in maths and she was working really hard in class and I was kind of, you know, I'd only just started and I was looking at her thinking, yeah, she's working hard. Like why is, why she only ever had Cs? Mm-hmm. And um, she did this algebra test and she got an A+. Plus. And she was floored, absolutely floored about this A+. Plus. It was the first time ever and we made yeah. a big deal about it and we celebrated and that oh, sort of Of course, thing. yeah, that's great. Um, but not only was it a celebration, it was a, a really great opportunity for me to say to her, well, what's different? You know, what's changed for you? And she was able to kind of self-reflect on, um, you know, herself as a learner and what she'd been doing um, that had led to that success. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's kind of it's both of those things. It's both yeah. the tracks information. Um, I I also track, ho- I tracked homework a mm. lot um, mm. because I'm, maths, I'm a maths PE teacher and in okay. maths yeah. and practice um, in maths is super important. So that was something yeah. that I tracked, but not everybody would track it. Um, mm. So I guess it's just about choosing the things that you will track along the way um, yeah. to inform your practice. Yeah, definitely. I like that you broke that into trackable and untrackable. That's two categories that are really easy to to think about each day. And a trap for young players and something that I struggle with in my first few years is a lot of my students did fly under the radar for quite some time. And uh, even that example you gave of put your hands up if you're going well, I would have some students put up five fingers when really they were just embarrassed to put up one. So are there any sort of practical practical tips around that, things to look out for in students who are maybe falling behind but not um, not giving us that information? Yeah, there's kind of two things. I think um, 
giving the opportunity to do that trackable task where Mm. maybe it's a one-minute paper and you ask students to write down everything they know about the topic in one minute. And it can be a really great exercise and I've seen some people use it as an exit exit pass. So that student who maybe is masking their struggle with, you know, maybe a rating of a four or a five, you'd hopefully see that they're in the one-minute paper, they haven't been able to put down many ideas or they don't have a very good understanding. So it's kind of being able to back up and it's that constant kind of collection, data collection cycle. But even when I say that out loud, that kind of sounds scary because um, it's not, it doesn't need to be as rigid um, and as formalised as that all the time. Yeah. So giving, yeah, just providing multiple opportunities, I guess, for them to demonstrate and self-reflect. The yeah. other one that's just really important is um, there needs to be a culture in the classroom of psychological safety. And we know that for so many different reasons um, and we know that students, unless they feel safe in a classroom, are not going to flourish and thrive. And a lot of this is about how you sell it. If you are able to be really honest about self-reflection, why it's important, how important it can be, Mm. uh, the value that you place on getting that feedback back from students and and how it can inform you and help you. Um, And the fact that even an open conversation about the fact that, you know, we all have different strengths and there's going to be times where we fly through things and find them really easy and there's always going to be times we find them really hard. Just starting to normalise the challenge um, Mm. I think is really important in classrooms. Mm. So I think the combination of actively trying to build that culture of it's okay to not know the answer and it's okay to not um, have all the answers and be flying through it, but also making sure that you're catching any of those kids in the net by planning um, deliberate activities throughout the term that allow you to collect the information. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And and I have noticed there are more ways of getting data very quickly from our students. So I sometimes spend a lot of time physically putting things into Excel, but you mentioned Kahoot and other programs. Are there are there lots of free programs out there that we can make quick quizzes on that give us really quick data from our students? Kahoot's the best one. Um, yeah. uh, the other one I go to often is Microsoft Forms and yeah. particularly the quiz um, yeah. Microsoft quizzes where you can set the um, set the correct answer, so there's no marking involved in that. Yeah, I guess, um, yeah. There's there's plenty of tools out there, um, mm. but the main thing is about thinking about the alignment to what your learning intentions and success criteria are for the say the week, the unit, whatever it might be, yeah. and what your summative assessment is because. If you're going to invest time and effort in creating something that collects information and whether you mark it or you reflect on the results and you analyse them and you think about how that informs your practice, it needs to be working towards actually achieving the goals and um, building the skills and understanding in students Mm. in the areas that they're going to need in the summative assessment. So you, Mm. you, you want a really kind of close alignment because it does take time. That's the reality. It does take time. Um, to yeah, to mark, to to collect, mark, and provide feedback. Yeah, so yeah, for sure. You need to kind of maximise your bang for your buck. Like, yeah, make sure it's the knowledge and skills that they actually need. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's good that you mentioned learning intentions and success criteria as well. Uh, our school has just formalised us doing that this year, and I'm really glad they have every lesson. I'm putting it on the board, and then the students know where they're going. So I think any new teachers listening to this, if if your school doesn't Mate doesn't encourage you to do learning intentions and success criteria. Give it a go because it, my classroom is running so much smoother this year. Each lesson because the students, they know what they're meant to be learning. 
and yeah. and the the statements on the the I can statements in the success criteria just make it so much clearer. So definitely worth yeah. doing. Absolutely, and mm. even um, when if you have really well constructed success criteria where you identify what success looks like in that task, mm. yeah. it then provides an opportunity for you to um, like almost make a judgment about student performance in your class based on or compared with the success criteria. But it also, if you make that learning and the success really visible, students can also Mm. um, self-reflect on performance so Mm. that they're more likely to be able to talk about what success looks like and how successful they have been. Mm. Um, Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and it's language they can understand as well. So it's it's, it's very, very useful. So the time of recording this at the moment, it's – about we're three weeks into term one and so at this time teachers are getting to know their students and around this time is where we start to think about our um, how we're adapting our learning for our students so if we're at a point now where we we have some data so we know where our students are at how do teachers then use that data to inform planning for the rest of the the rest of the term yeah look there's there's so many different ways. There's not one kind of simple, I wish there was a simple answer at times. Um, I I talk about three really key parts. Um, So the first fundamental step, I guess, in this journey is data literacy, right? So Mm. the first thing is that people need to understand what the numbers are and what they mean and what they tell them and what they don't tell them. And the second thing is visualising the data. So once you start to get all of that uh, data collected somewhere, so it might be in your own spreadsheet, maybe using colour to identify trends, the key is the data storytelling and that's where the numbers become shifts in practice and have an impact on young people because we're able to identify what those numbers mean about individuals, small groups, whatever it might be, Mm. and then we can make decisions and shift practice accordingly. Now, that can look really different for different people. Um, Look, one thing would be If you identified that there was a consistent issue with the program in your school, you would absolutely need to question the program and rewrite it. But I've only seen that happen once in one school. The reality is that the change from being data-informed is not necessarily that and is not that big. Um, It might be that you identify that a small group of students in your class are really struggling with a particular element or skill in whatever you've just taught. Mm -hmm. And so your evidence means that we've collected some evidence, you've grouped them in a smaller group, you've set the rest of the class off to do some other work and you go and spend a bit more time reteaching for that small group. There's no point in you reteaching to the whole class um, because you're just going to waste time, obviously, for students who don't need it. But you do need to reteach for these young people. So it might be a a shift like that. It could be something for one student in particular that is either really struggling or is going really well and it might encourage you to think about um, what are some possible extension activities or um, some kind of more open-ended tasks or inquiry-based learning that somebody who is really engaged, really passionate, has a really good level of skill and understanding, mm. you know, let, give them a bit more freedom. That's that's actually what it um, may be. Um, it's, it's sometimes a whole class. You might kind of see that there's um, an issue or a a gap in a lot of students in your class and that Mm. means that you go through and you reteach and you spend a bit more time on it. Um, For others, it might be that it starts a conversation. Mm. Um, You know, if if one thing that you do is if you're tracking homework and you're three weeks in and you see that, 
there's a student who's rarely doing homework and they're not engaged in class and, you know, you're kind of forming this picture of them as a learner, this is the perfect time to touch base with them and ask them what's going on. Mm. Um, And then depending on what comes out of that conversation, have a conversation with a pastoral leader, a house dean, a year-level coordinator, um, contact home, like be proactive about it um, rather than reactive at the end of term. Um, Look, and there's certainly times where programs and things and and focus of units does need to change, but... Mm. It's yeah, it can be really minor. Uh, yeah. And it can also be that we can sometimes we can go through things a bit quicker and we can move through a bit faster if the majority of our students have gotten a really good handle on it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's good those moments. If if in the plan it says we need to do three days on, say we're doing multiplication, but if the students within one lesson grasp the concept, then we can skip the next two lessons and go into some deeper problem solving or get into different topics so just we're not wasting their time and going over things they already know. And it's good that you mentioned about extending students as well because from the beginner teachers I've spoken to, um, a a lot of – and I include myself in that. This is my fifth year. A lot of us are really good at finding students who are struggling and helping them uh, helping them, but the students who need extension, they're often the students who sometimes we as beginner teachers uh, sort of leave behind. We go, okay, they're doing great. We'll leave them to themselves, but actually, we need to cater for their needs as well. So it's good that you mentioned that we can we need to look out for our students who need extension too. Yeah, absolutely. It's really yeah. important. All students are making progress, mm. um, not not just the ones at the at the kind of lower end that really need that boost in the scaffolding and the additional support, but yeah. every every single student should be making progress all the time. So, Selena, you've been working with data for quite a while and you've been helping some you've been helping schools process their their data to help their learners. Can you tell us a bit about the work that you do and what schools are looking at and how schools are using data to inform their learning? Yeah, so there's so I say I'm a school data coaching consultant mm. um, and I work with schools in just a whole host of different ways. Um, I've worked with some really elite performing high performing schools um i've worked with plenty of mainstream schools plenty of state schools plenty of um religious institute i've worked with flexible learning centers um learned from hospital schools distance education so it's actually been really interesting as a teacher just to get into different sites and learn like as much as i'm kind of i feel like i'm contributing in some way i also learn so much and take Mm. so much from it um Mm. And look, to be honest, the challenge in each school is just totally different and um, the, the skill set of people in every school I've been into is really different. Mm. Um, in every school I've been into, there are people who are really comfortable with using data um, mm. and are able to maybe show others and help others. But there's not always the systems and the processes in place that allow that sharing and allow that kind of um upskilling of others so sometimes I work with schools to come up with the process that allows or encourages those data conversations Mm. sometimes it's workshops um so sometimes it's kind of a matter of you know why are we doing this like why are we talking about data why is it important you know what are some of those big policy and framing documents in Australia that influence our work in schools and then what are the practicalities of how does that actually how does it actually translate to classroom practice? Mm-hmm. So yesterday, for example, I was working with the school um, and we were looking through PAT data and we were looking at the main gaps for different students and we were working out how teachers in that subject area, in that year level, um, would be able to modify their practice to kind of hopefully bridge some of those gaps for those mm-hmm. young people. 
Um, in other t- in other ways, you know, um, some schools have bought really great visualization platforms. Um, mm-hmm. There's a few on the market. Um, and your school will possibly have one, probably have one at yep. this point. So there's kind of two parts. There's, there's a learning management system, which is generally like role and student details and all that sort of thing. Yep. And then the learning management system is the visualisation platform. So some of the work I do with teachers is looking at the visualisation platform. And, again, it's kind of identifying the trends and then it's like, well, the so what I've got these five students who are really low who haven't passed my subject in the last 12 months. Mm. What are some of the things that I can do? And kind of facilitating those conversations um, at that level. Mm. And um, and for others, it's, you know, increasingly it's the well-being. So how, yeah. how are we collecting more information about well-being? How are we getting that in a visualisation dashboard? Because the visualisation dashboards haven't necessarily caught up and mm. schools are kind of saying to me, well, we want to be able to look at a student profile or a class profile um, with well-being data and learning analytics together mm. um, because, you know, we know that if a student's well-being is not great, neither is like their learning is not going to be good oh, definitely. either. Yeah, yeah, they Being go together. To side by side is really important. So yeah, it's mm. it's um and sometimes it's leadership teams coming up with strategic plans and writing documents and coming yeah. up with data plans and that sort of thing. So yeah. yeah, it's um as I said, I I've learned so much in the yep. last couple of years and yeah, yeah it's just awesome work. I love yeah. it. we've just got so many great teachers across the country doing yeah. phenomenal things and yeah, yeah, things to learn and yeah, yeah, no, there are. Throws me away. Yeah, and that's what's been good about this podcast. Every teacher I talk to, I, I learn something new. And even yeah. speaking to you today, I've got half a page of notes here of things I'll take back to my classroom tomorrow. So, you know, it's great to see so many good things happening out there in schools. And if someone listens to this today and they, they want to learn some more about data, I believe you have some uh, webinars on your website and YouTube channel. So, where, where can people find you? Yeah, so my website is Asha for Schools. So, it's double A-S-H-A-F-O-R schools.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and the details about any upcoming webinars are on my website yep. on there. Um, there's also links on both of them to my books. So I've got two books that I've put out through Hawker Brownlow. Mm. Um, one's on using and analysing data. So that's kind of more of a how-to cheat sheet kind of yep. some ideas, like if you're kind right. of starting out. Um, and then the second one is on leading data-informed change. So if you're mm. like a, say, a team leader or a department leader or whatever it might be, um, that's probably more useful for you. But, yeah, Hawker Brownlow's got them. and yep. But... Um, I do a lot of work on LinkedIn as well. So, okay, yeah, just great. Generally, love sharing the message of data. Yeah, so. no, great. No, it's a good message to spread. So, yeah. I'll I'll put your website and the the book links in the show notes so people can jump on that and uh, and and find those resources and and get in contact with you from there. But Dr. Selena Fisk, thank you very much for coming on the Teachers Guide podcast. I've learned a lot, and I'm sure that our listeners will as well. And uh, we wish you all the best for your future work. Thank you. It's been great talking to you. And that brings us to the end of today's episode. Look, I hope you've enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Selena Fisk as much as I have. There's plenty of things I'm going to put into action in my own teaching and the links to her books and her website and resources are all in the show notes. So definitely check those out. And wherever you are in your teaching journey, I wish you all the best. And please join us next time for episode number 21 of the Teacher's Guide podcast.